1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. You're listening to New Books and Disability Studies. My name is Shohini Chatterjee. I'm a PhD candidate in gender, sexuality, and women's studies at Western University, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Sami Shock on her new book, Black Disability Politics, published by Duke University Press this year. Dr. Shock is Associate Professor of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and is the author of Body, Mind, Reimagined, Disability, Race, Gender in Black Women, Speculative Fiction, also published by Duke University Press in 2018. Today, we'll be in conversation with Dr. Shock about her new book, Black Disability Politics, which is all set to be released this month. Welcome to the New Books uh, Network, Dr. Shock.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you so much um, for being here and, and for this incredible book. Um, could you begin by telling us a little bit about the intellectual and affective influences that have shaped this book? And um, how did you come to Black Disability Studies and movements?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been a scholar in disability studies for a really long time. I was lucky to be at an undergraduate institution where disability studies was a minor that I could take. Um, so I've been in the field and studied in the field for a long time. And i I've often been the only black person in the room in some of my interactions in disability studies conferences and spaces. And so it's always been a thing that I've thought about a lot. Um, But the main influences that got me to this particular project were two things. First, really being involved um, more in disability justice work and reading more from activists and movement workers outside of academia, uh, thinking through how do we bring together various movement works, especially around issues of race and sexuality and gender with work in disability rights and disability justice. And so learning from activists and seeing the way that their work was really transforming interpersonal relationships and care networks um, and bringing that into my classroom space made me want to invest more in movement work as an intellectual project. Um, And what got me really to this particular kind of history that I dive into in the book was the work of Alondra Nelson. I read her book on the Black Panthers, health activism, the book's called Body and Soul, and there was just this one part where she talks about Irving Zola, who's a really early disability studies scholar, and it just clicked in my head that all this health activism stuff that I had been kind of reading on the side and in relation to some things in disability studies was often disability rights and disability justice kind of work without getting that label. And so I wanted to dive in and learn more about the work of the Black Panthers. And so that kind of began the seed of the project to see what else I could find if I dove into their archives.
1: Right. You invite readers into Black disability politics by first tracing its genesis in a way in the Black Panther Party's activities in the 1970s um, when it was predominantly run by Black women. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about the significance of BPP in Black disability politics, um, its its revolutionary promise when it focused, uh, as you mentioned in the book, its attention on developing local survival programs and um, the efforts of of its disabled members at the time in developing its, its disability politics.
0: Absolutely. The Black Panther Party started in 1966. but And so a lot of the early history of the party focuses on armed resistance and policing of police, um, armed protection of Black communities from the police. And so that's kind of the main image that a lot of folks have. But the party actually lasted into the 80s. And in the last decade of their work, we're really focused on local community survival programs in the Oakland area. And so for folks that are unaware, a lot of the history of disability rights also has a lot of its history and home in the Bay Area as well. So really this confluence of disability rights emerging quite strongly um, in the Bay Area and the Panthers having their home there brought these groups um, and folks into interaction with one another. And so there are several people that influence the connection. Brad Lomax is the one that a lot of folks know about and talk about the most. He was a member of the Black Panther Party Um, who was a wheelchair user with multiple sclerosis, and he developed his disability while he was already a Panther. And so he was making connections with folks in the independent living movement and disability rights more generally in the area, which got the Panthers more connected. What I learned in doing a bunch of my research is that the Panthers weren't necessarily always focused on disability, but because of their wider ideology around liberation in a radical way for all oppressed people. Their 10 point platform talked about liberation and freedom for all oppressed people. And so that included disabled people. Their larger ideology of the need to work in coalition with one another and support other marginalized and oppressed groups in their efforts for freedom, understanding those freedoms as tied to one another, meant that they could incorporate disability rights work that was happening in the Bay Area um, into their work pretty easily. So the Panthers moved to have their buildings become wheelchair accessible um, through the work of Brad Lomax and the Independent Living Center there. Or Center for Independent Living. And um, they also then were involved in some other work where they collaborated with disability rights groups. In the book, I talk about their work in the 504 sit-in, um, which is pretty famous inside of disability history, but ironically is mentioned almost nowhere in research on the Panthers. Um, and then also their work with um, fighting psychiatric abuse, and particularly the, re- the return of psychosurgery in the 1970s.
1: Right, um, the principles of disability justice, uh, such as intersectionality, uh, cross movement solidarity, anti capitalism, and, and collective liberation, were present in BPP's activism and its disability politics. Would you call the BPP a predecessor of disability justice movements uh, in many ways? Um, do queer and disabled people find find a political ancestry in in black movements that explicitly address? incarceration, police police brutality, and inequitable housing, um, food insecurity. Do you think they were the the predecessors? I think they were one
0: of many predecessors, absolutely. I think that we are all indebted to previous radical um, and liberation work, and the Panthers were unquestionably an influence. I mean, they taught Other activist groups, certain things that they learned through their interaction with the police and the FBI, they were really savvy in their interactions with police and in protests, so they had information and knowledge that they were able to share with other groups, and their thinking was so intersectional and so politically astute in ways that I think now looking back seems ahead of their time, um, which is why they were so threatening to folks at the time. They were proposing things like free universal health care that seemed just um, wild at the time that they were proposing it. Um, And I think it's still wild for some folks today to think about. Um, And so their work, absolutely, I think in conjunction with Black feminist work and other feminists of color that were talking about intersectionality pretty regularly. The Panthers were led, as you said earlier, um, by a lot of Black women at this point in their history. The majority of their membership were Black women at this point doing a lot of this work. Um, And then they also partnered with some other disability rights groups in the psychological and psychiatric activism stuff that I mentioned before. And they were proponents of women's rights and queer rights. Um, they were one of the first Black activist groups to publicly come out in support of gay rights. So they were doing this work um, that I think often gets obscured because it is in the later era of their um, work as, as the Black Panther Party. And a lot of the work The research is focused on their earlier era, Um, but I think that they were absolutely a predecessor in the way that they were thinking about this work and the way that they were talking about survival programs. So much of their survival programs, which were focused on things like supporting folks getting housing, um, getting folks access to medical care, food. There was a Safe Walk program where they would escort um, elderly folks and senior citizens um, to their errands. And so all of this was also a form of mutual aid within community, right, which is so central to disability justice work, I believe. And so we see these programs that they were establishing to help with the survival. And the idea was that folks could not be involved in high-level political work and organizing and protest work if their basic needs weren't met. So focusing on that basic needs um, through the survival programs, I think is indeed a predecessor of disability justice work that often happens um, in these interpersonal moments, right? Um, Leah Lakshmi, seen has work in care work and her new book, um, The Future is Disabled, she talks about that so much disability justice work is in these interpersonal Relationships in the ways that we create access for each other, that we share resources with each other, and that that is the work of keeping disabled folks alive um, and connected to one another. So I definitely see the work of the Black Panthers as influencing this, um, and really Black liberation work in general, I think disability rights and disability justice movement workers were inspired by, and there are clear ways that we see that in terms of um, modeling some of the protest work similarly after Black liberation work, and even And at the 504 sit-in, they sang the song, We Shall Overcome, when they won, which was a Black um, civil rights song, right? So there's a lot of interaction and learning from these movements that early disability rights and disability justice work um, is inspired by.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so powerful. Um I love the section in the book about Auckland Community School established by the BPP in 1973 um and how it was intentional about creating an anti-ableist education f- uh, framework for all students and students with disabilities um and, and tailored the curriculum to meet their needs. Um I I found it interesting that their educational politics tied to justice was rooted in anti-racism and and owing to that sense of justice, they could also do a lot more with a framework uh, focused on equity for variously marginalized students. Could you talk a little bit about the pedagogy practiced in the school and its significance for black um, disability politics?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I use the example of the Oakland Community School in the book to talk about how often the work of disability, Black disability politics shows up in ways that are obscured and might not be labeled as disability work and really clearly for us. So when um, scholars are going back to kind of look at the history of Black organizing and Black cultural work, it may not be labeled and use the same words as some folks in disability rights or disability justice, but that work is there. And so with the Oakland Community, school. It was a community school for mostly Black folks in the neighborhood, although folks of other races were there. And it emerged out of a lot of Black children being forced out of public schools under the label of being uneducable, right? So they were pushed out of schools or put into highly segregated special ed classrooms that were not actually being educated. And so there was connection there between disabled folks and the label of disability and the way disabled students are treated and anti-Black racism. And I know we see this still um, with the connection between special ed and students of color today. so the Panthers said, you know, we need we need another space. Um, this was also a, a response to the FBI um, and their targeting of Black Panther members and their families. And so they wanted to create safe educational spaces for the children in the neighborhood and the children of the members of the party. And so it became a space where students were organized by learning levels, um, by different topics. So they might be in one learning level for math and a different one for Uh, language arts, for example. And it really centered on teaching critical thinking skills and using knowledge in everyday life circumstances. So a math class might involve like doing the math on buying your groceries, for example, like adding up the price of something or getting change. And so understanding how to put these things into skills and adapting to the individual needs of students. So students moved in the way that they needed to move in terms of their learning patterns. There were no standardized testing outside of teaching the older children how to take standardized tests when they transitioned into public schooling because the school was only for um, elementary school. And so we see all these ways that aspects of universal design for learning and a resistance to ableist education models are being incorporated largely because so many Black students were being labeled as disabled, whether or not they had learning disabilities or they needed a different mode of teaching um, than what was being put what was being done in the public schools at that time. And so I use this as an example to say how there were disabled students there unquestionably, but it wasn't advertised as like a school for disabled children, but a community school in which they would adapt to different students' needs. So there's archival evidence that they brought in, for example, some um, people to consult when there were students that were having learning difficulties around reading to, think, to help the teachers there figure out how to help these students with reading. So they were bringing in experts. They were working with individual students' needs in a way that was inclusive of students with disabilities without necessarily labeling it as disability justice or disability rights work. Um, And so that's kind of the lesson that I take away from all of the examples that I have um, in the book is that disability, Black disability politics often show up in ways that don't use the same language as the mainstream disability rights movement and may not use the language of disability, but really be talking about race and anti-Black racism and resistance to that, but within are still really addressing the disabling impact of racial neglect, racial violence, um, and, and trying to attend to the needs of Black disabled people.
1: Right. Um, in the second chapter of your book, you write about BPP's critique of over-medicalization and how it advocated for community control of clinics um, along with the police and and schools and how it aimed to serve people both body and soul as you mentioned could you talk about the psychiatric industrial complex and how black disability politics um, in its complex critiques and articulations um, addressing structural violence in its various forms also offered possibilities of a world where um, psychiatric abuse would not be normalized um, and maybe talk a little bit about how while protesting against this form of violence, BPP could also offer critiques against the prison industrial complex.
0: Absolutely. So really, the Panthers' work in resisting psychiatric abuse started in the prisons. So members were often arrested and spending time in prisons and jails. And what they noticed was that a lot of Black men were being labeled as having some kind of psychiatric disability, schizophrenia in particular, or just being labeled as violent and then being forced to take certain kinds of medications or being put into psychiatric wards um, either attached to or separate from the the prison institution in order to control, confine um these men. And so they were noticing this and paying attention to the way that psychiatric labels and drugs were being used as a method of control. And so then as there was protest work happening among psychiatric disability activist groups or mad activists as they often called themselves, right, when they were doing this work, the Panthers came together with them to say, oh, this is happening, right, in these same spaces. It's not just happening in the psychiatric wards where folks are forcibly institutionalized or potentially um checking themselves into psychiatric wards. It's also happened forcibly inside of prisons. And so they they partnered with these organizations to fight some of the practices that were happening within within psychiatric wards where folks from prisons were sometimes sent. Um, And they also did this to resist the return of psychosurgery. So there was a proposed center um, for the study of violence at UCLA that basically would have become a center to test out psychosurgery. um, Psychosurgery is you know physical surgery on the brain to change um, behavioral aspects um, and mental aspects, and the most famous version of this is lobotomy that most folks know. But there are multiple forms of psychosurgery. And so the Panthers partnered with disability activist organizations to say, this is, this is going to harm so many people, right? And this is the problem with this kind of research. And they were able to get the entire thing shut down. The, the center was never funded. And so they worked with different organizations on these kinds of issues that really overlapped. So they saw the way that the same issues were happening in psychiatric wards as were happening in, um, in prison institutions, in the book, I cite a couple of letters that they published in their in their Black Panther newsletter from Black men inside of psych wards that were sent there from prisons. And one of the things that they noted was that for many people, they were never given a chance to come off the meds before going to a trial or a hearing, for example. Um, so they weren't able to be their best selves or to really advocate for themselves and for the long for the length of time that they were in psych wards, it did not count towards their time in prison. So if, for example, they had been in, in the ward for six months before their trial, and then they were convicted and were sentenced to three years, they had to start that time all over again. The time in the ward did not count. And so it also became a way um, of keeping, particularly Black men, incarcerated even longer by using these labels of psychiatric disability. So the Panthers noted this, and and work together with other organizations to fight some of the returns of psychiatric abuse and control that was happening within these institutions. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Right.
1: Um, you you write about the brutal police violence experienced by Jacob Blake in 2020 when he was shot seven times in front of his children um, and he became disabled as a result, Um you also write how he was handcuffed in, in his hospital bed and was constantly being watched by authorities and denied even a modicum of privacy, um, and that even though um, it is Black's pain and disability that needs to be talked about in, in Black disability politics, police violence also need to be centered in these conversations, um, along with anti-Black racism and classism. Um, and, and how trauma and vicarious trauma and psychiatric disability could also be incurred through witnessing violence should also be foregrounded um, in, in Black disability politics. Could you expand on this for our audience with attention to um, how interconnections between various forms of violence can help in the evolution of a more just rights politics?
0: Yeah, so in the book, there are two interlude chapters where I essentially try to take some lessons from the ways that the work of the organizations that I study historically could have been better, Um, how to address some of the missteps perhaps that they they took so that um, hopefully organizers and activists as as well as scholars are able to learn and take away some lessons from from the book. And so in the section that you're you're mentioning where I talk about Jacob Blake I'm talking about the way that we address disabling violence and often folks focus so hard on the fact that disability exists as the reason that we should be upset as the tragedy in and of itself rather than really focusing on the violence being the tragedy, the harm being the tragedy, the trauma being the tragedy, and not disability in and of itself. Um, And so one of the ways that I try to address that is to say that we need to really focus some of our organizing work on ensuring the continued support of people who have experienced disabling violence, and that includes witnessing um, police violence as well as being subjected to police violence. I mean, witnessing violence is still um, a form of violence, especially when you're talking about children watching their family members or parents um, being harmed. And so I use the Jacob Blake example because there were folks that were talking about the impact on his children psychologically um, and the number of people that were around watching this happen. Um, And so I, I talk a little bit about this as just one of the ways that we can adjust our approach to not just say, look, this person is disabled now, look how bad this is, but to say, how do we Organize around supporting folks who are disabled by this violence, continuing to fight the violence, of course, of course, talking about how harmful it is, but not making disability the end all be all, to make sure that we're actually supporting folks who are disabled by various forms of racist violence um, rather than just using them as symbols um, to further the cause.
1: Right. Um, In the book, you also talk about Black children and the effects of violence on their physical and mental health. Um, How can the needs of Black children and and Black disabled children be centered in Black disability politics? Yeah, I think
0: some of this work involves listening to young adults. I think a lot about the work here in Madison, Wisconsin um, that got police out of schools here in Madison out of the public schools and a lot of that work was being done by students of color young folks of color who showed up to school board meetings and kept saying this is harmful for us this is the way that I see myself and my friends impacted by the presence of police in schools Um, and they did research that showed that the students who are most likely to be targeted um, for some kind of interaction with police in schools were often um disabled youth of color. And so I think listening to folks about what they want and what they need, how they need that support is really important. Um, Young adults are often dismissed as not knowing what they want, and especially when it comes to disabled youth, their parents um, and their parents' opinions are prioritized, but they're not living those same experiences. So that's one thing um, that I think just listening to young adults with disabilities, um, especially in terms of the context of schooling, what they need to feel safe, safe and to be supported in these spaces Um, and then yeah continuing to think about the the impact of what we witness long term um, and how we address these traumas um, and this harm I think about how many of us have witnessed various forms of violence because of everything being recorded that we're constantly kind of bombarded with these images um, and what it must be like now to kind of grow up with that so I don't really have an answer (laughs) in that regard. um, There's so much to be done. But I, the main point that I think I want to take away from this is like listening to folks about their experiences and what they need and learning how to support people outside of the singular instance of a disabling moment. How do we continue to support survivors of gun violence, for example, of any sort um, outside of just the ins- the singular instance of like a hospitalization and release? How do we incorporate accessibility into our communities to ensure that folks who have survived violence don't also then end up having to leave their communities because it's so inaccessible to them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You also place emphasis on bolstering social support as a way of battling disabling police violence and also ensuring that eventually it leads to prison and police abolition in keeping with the values um, of disability justice. Could you talk a little bit about social and community support that Black disabled people are offering each other in the everyday and the possibilities of abolitionist futures um, that are being created in the process?
0: Yeah. Um... There is a lot of work that's
1: happening among
0: Black disabled people right now that is really about consciousness raising and community building. And a lot of this happens online. A lot of us are really separate from each other. We're separated from our communities. Um, Folks have trouble getting around or traveling. And so a lot of the the organizing work is happening online. Um, I interviewed... collection of Black disabled activists, mostly folks from the Harriet Tubman collective for the book to learn about what contemporary Black disabled activists are doing. And this community building part, this consciousness raising part is really central right now of helping folks understand themselves as part of a larger disability community. um, And that may or may not involve claiming disability as an identity. Um, And then thinking about how are individual, concerned, or connected to these larger systemic issues. Um, And so the work of the Harriet Tubman Collective, I think, is the best example of this in the way that they have addressed um, the role of both race and disability in police violence and pushed back on both Black and disability rights, majority white disability rights organizations that have not properly attended to that particular intersection of race and disability in their work around police violence and other forms of um, racial and ableist violence so I encourage folks to find these organizations um, like I said the Harriet Tubman collective and all the members um, following them on social media and really paying attention to what they're saying um, because we're we're slowly building community but it is still, a new thing in some ways for us a distinctly black disabled activists organizer community to be coming together explicitly under these identities, I think. And so it's really it's a it's an alive time for, for this kind of
1: movement work. Yeah. That's, that's beautifully put. Um, you write that National Black Women's Health Project used the conceptual framework of black feminist health activism and, and not that of disability rights, but their priorities were anti-ableist and hence shares the values of black disability politics. Could you tell us a little bit about how this particular framing informed um, its activism and, and helped it raise the political consciousness of its membership?
0: Yeah. So the National Black Women's Health Project started in the 80s um, in, in Atlanta, Georgia, and eventually had their base in Washington, D.C., as they eventually became much more of a political lobbying organization. But their roots were in local grassroots organizing around health concerns within Black communities with a focus on Black women um, as in need of receiving more care and support, but also as being often the primary caregivers um, within Black communities. And so their work was to, again, around this idea of consciousness raising, Um, there were a lot of, they had these self-help groups where folks got together, Black women got together um, within their communities to talk about their health concerns, to talk about the barriers um, that they faced to taking care of themselves and to encourage and support one another. Um, So it started in this way of bringing folks together regardless of disability identity to talk about health. But in the process of doing that um, and forming these these self-help groups, the organization also had conferences um, and a newsletter and ended up publishing self-help books. And that is where they started to really talk about specific health issues that are disabilities. So they didn't always say disabled women, although disabled women were included in there were sections on kind of disability more generally, but they would talk about specific disabilities, specific health concerns that were predominant among um, Black women. And so there was conversations around lupus, for example, and diabetes, heart disease, um, and HIV AIDS in a way that really focused on what do Black women, women need to take care of themselves and to be well. And this is not in some neoliberal self-help, go take a bath kind of way, um, but it was things like teaching folks how to advocate themse- for themselves within the medical industrial complex. So for example, one of the self-help books had a, a list of the kinds of specialists that you might see in a hospital and what they do, a list of questions that you should ask a new doctor when going to a child. Up, new doctor visit. So, teaching folks, this is how you advocate for yourself. These are your rights within these settings this is essential disability justice work. It's what we do among ourselves within disability community to teach each other, hey, you should ask for this drug. They don't They don't like to prescribe it, but it's good for this thing. Or, hey, you should try this doctor. This doctor seems to be better around this thing than that thing, right? Sharing information, teaching each other how to ask for what we need and get what we need within the medical industrial complex. And that's what they were doing in this group. One of the many things that they were doing. They also were really focused on teaching Black women how to address health needs within the context of their lives um, rather than taking a one-size-fits-all approach that sometimes happens in public health. So it's really important public health work that they were doing to say, okay, we want to reduce rates of HIV among Black women. How do we do that specifically? Just saying wear a condom doesn't work, or having some testing events at gay clubs, that's not gonna work for reaching our target population. So, how do we do that. Um, And they started with work by talking to Black women with HIV about what they would need, what they would have wanted, and again, the support that they want now. And so both ends, both the prevention and the support um, were essential to that work. So that's just some of the ways um, that that organization did what I consider to be Black disability political work um, to be kind of root work that is very similar to disability justice work now that was not called disability activism in any way whatsoever. Um, so again, kind of the, the theme or one of the many themes of the book is that we have to be looking and exploring a little bit differently when we're talking about Black disability politics, because these same words and these same labels might not be used, but the work, the work is really important. The work is really interesting. The practices are very similar even if the language being used is different. Yeah.
1: You write, and I quote, in an ideal world, Black and other marginalized people with disabilities would identify as disabled. Um, unquote. What revolutionary present and futures can we imagine when Black people identify and take up public space as disabled and also as disabled and queer, disabled and trans? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so that, that section of the book comes from Conversations around disability identity with the contemporary Black disabled activists and really thinking through, you know, what's the value of this label? Because so many folks in disability rights and disability justice spaces are so insistent on claiming disability and disability pride. Um, and that can be complicated for Black folks, um, often because of histories of being labeled disab- as disabled when we were not disabled or disabled in a different way than we were being labeled. Um, understanding our disabilities is sometimes tied to really significant trauma, Um, and just knowing that as Black folks, folks of color, queer folks, trans folks, adding another marginalized identity label to ourselves might be a challenge. It might feel like too much. And I'm saying this from a place of experience. I talk about in the book how I was in the field of disability studies for many years before I actually identified as disabled um, because I had to kind of make sense of my disabilities, my particular disabilities within the context of anti-Black racism and understanding the way that racism really shapes my experiences of disability and for some cause my disabilities. Um, and the, organi- the interviews that I did with the organizers were really solidified for me the need to claim disability really strongly and really publicly and I'm extraordinarily grateful um, to all of them for that. And so when I talked to them we talked about the fact that often the the need to claim disability um, from kind of a mainstream perspective is for numbers, right? We want to say there's this many disabled people, there's that many disabled people and on that front Disability organizers, Black disabled organizers, said to me, you know, that's not really what we're too concerned about. Like, I don't care if someone, you know, identifies as disabled. I want them to get the, the needs, the needs met, right? I want their access needs met, no matter what. But the value that we I found in talking to these organizers around the label of disability is in finding community. It's in finding other people who can do the things, like I mentioned before, around mutual aid to provide this advice and support um, to affirm when your access needs aren't being met, that it is not your fault, right, to affirm that you are... Inside of an oppressive system that is harmful to you and limiting to you because of your disability. And so, claiming a particular label puts us in connection with other people like us. And so, in many ways, that is what happens for us as queer people or as trans people, that we are connected to people like us in ways that are affirming in a world that wants to deny who we are and hurt who we are. And so, that's why, um, in an ideal world, we would identify as disabled so we can see each other, so we can find each other. Whatever words we want to use, um, maybe disability is not ultimately the word that we use, you know, language changes, but being able to find one another, connect with one another, and understand the ways that even as our disabilities are different and therefore our experiences of being disabled are different, there are threads of connection that are important and the more that we can connect and find
1: community, the more we can organize powerfully. Absolutely. Community is life affirming. Um, this was an incredibly powerful conversation. And I realized that we are at the end of this episode. But before um, I let you go, would you like to tell us what, uh, what you're currently working on? Yeah, so
0: I am shifting into a new project that's very, very tentatively new. Um, but essentially, I'm interested in researching the concept of pleasure activism and the practice of pleasure activism among multiply not marginalized groups. So I am in the process of getting together um, some grant funding to interview organizers of pleasure spaces for marginalized people. Um, and by that, I mean really anything that is not intended to be educational or political space, but um, enjoyable and pleasure. So whether that's like a sewing group, a sports group, a dance party, um, and interviewing organizers of these spaces for multiply marginalized people. So for example, a queer and trans people of color dance party. Um, I want to learn about how they make those spaces work, um, the political intent behind these spaces, and hopefully eventually talk to people who attend these kind of spaces and what they get out of it. So that's the next project over You know, we'll see with COVID how long it takes me to um, really get into attending and talking to people at events. But um, yeah, I really want to learn about pleasure spaces as, um, as a container for activist movement and liberation work
1: right this sounds like such a fascinating project and i'll keep an eye out for it and i and i hope we get to read it um soon um COVID notwithstanding um thank you thank you so much for for this conversation and for the book i'll i i know i'll go back to it many times and i'll also talk about it in various spaces for a long time to come um thank you so much
0: thank you for reading it and thank you for having me i really appreciate it